even down to the animals, repented, turned from the evil of their ways, and cried out to God. And we saw even more miraculously that though they deserved destruction, God chose to show mercy to them. God chose to take this people who deserved destruction and show through his kind and loving actions his care for them. He showed care for the needy and undeserving of Nineveh by showing them mercy. This seems, if you you think about it, if you picture being in a circumstance where you have an opportunity to speak to a huge group of people about the goodness of God, about his judgment of sin, which we all hope that he would judge wickedness, and call them to repent and put their help in him, and they respond. And not only that, but beyond this group of people that you're talking to, the whole city responds. That's like every preacher's dream. That's like, why would you be upset about that? Why would you sit and sulk over that? But that's exactly what Jonah does. As Dan read, verse 1, this displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah was angry. Why? Why was he angry? Last week we looked at what happened. Now we want to think about why did what happened, that massive repentance, why did that make Jonah so angry? Why would the mercy of God be offensive to Jonah? Why would it be offensive to anyone? That's the question we want to wrestle with this morning. What I want us to see as we walk through this short text is that the mercy of God, God's mercy is offensive because it is costly. God's mercy is offensive because it is costly. I want us to see that as we walk through this text this morning. We're going to see three reactions that Jonah has to the mercy of God. They're reactions because of the cost of God's mercy. And I want us to see how God's mercy actually costs Jonah and costs us. Even though we talk about God's mercy as being free, and in one sense it is, in another sense it's very costly. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So let's go through these verses one at a time and think about these costs. Verse 1 We read, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What I want us to see first is the reason why he was angry is because Nineveh deserved to be destroyed. And God instead forgave Nineveh. And the cost that Jonah had to pay as a result of that was that Jonah himself would also have to forgive Nineveh. It's the first cost, forgiveness. God's mercy requires Jonah to forgive. You see, he's angry because Nineveh deserves punishment, and he's not wrong about that, right? We've talked last week about the wickedness and evil of the Assyrians. These were a terrorist people that deserved the strictest judgment God could put on them. And Jonah's mad because they didn't get it. God knows that Nineveh deserves to be destroyed. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, right, the evil of Nineveh has come up before him. Not only does God know, but Nineveh themselves, the Ninevites, when they hear this pronouncement of God's judgment, they themselves know that they deserve to be destroyed. Right? When the king says in verse 9 of chapter 3, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When he says that, he's saying, I know that we actually deserve this punishment. This is a consequence that we deserve. Why? In verse 8, he talks about it. At the end, he says, let everyone turn from his evil way 
and from the violence that is in his hands. So it's not that Jonah was wrong that Nineveh deserved to be destroyed. Rather, he wasn't understanding God's mercy. His anger at God's forgiveness that he'd extended to to Nineveh actually distorted how he thought about what was happening. Look at, look, look at this for a second with me. In, in verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. Nineveh was evil, right? They were doing evil actions, wickedness, and they turned from their evil way. And then it says, when God saw this, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. Now, ESV translates it disaster, and that's a fine translation. In the Hebrew, it's evil. Now, it's not that God is being charged with evil, as in it would have been morally wrong for God to destroy Nineveh. It would have been right. But God turned from the evil that he had intended for Nineveh. He turned from the disaster that he had planned. When Nineveh turned from their evil, God turned from the disaster or evil that he had planned. But look in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. You might have a footnote in your Bible. I do in the ESV here that I have. It says, Hebrew... It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. In the Hebrew, again, the author of Jonah is using that word evil to to draw our attention to Nineveh was evil and they turned. And so God turned from the evil that he had planned for Nineveh. And all of this, Jonah looked at it and said, that's that's evil. That's wicked. God accused, or excuse me, Jonah accused God of evil, wickedness, because he was so angry at seeing God forgive the Ninevites who did not deserve this forgiveness, his anger distorted reality for him. As God's anger cooled in response to the Nineveh's repentance, Jonah's anger rose and boiled within him. Because God forgiving Nineveh meant that Jonah had to as well, and he did not want to. How should Jonah have reacted to Nineveh's repentance? If you've been in the church any amount of time, you know how we ought to react to sinners who repent, right? Think about this story in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, Jesus tells this story. He tells a story of repentance and God's response. He says this, The tax collectors and sinners all drawing near to hear Jesus, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man extends forgiveness and kindness and mercy to sinners. So Jesus tells them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. How ought Jonah have reacted to the repentance of Nineveh? He ought to have rejoiced with the angels in heaven, right? He ought to have rejoiced with God who was delighted to see that Nineveh had repented and now he could relent from the disaster, from the evil he had planned against them. But Jonah was unwilling to rejoice because he was unwilling to forgive Nineveh for the evil and atrocities that they had committed. Instead, Jonah burned with anger 
towards God and towards Nineveh. And that brought him to his reaction then, which was to pray, but not to pray, Lord, help me forgive Nineveh, as maybe he ought to. But instead, he prayed to complain to God. And this brings up the second cost that we see in this. Verse 2 says, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah is turning to the Lord and say, see, I told you so. If I go to Nineveh, I knew that somehow you would work it out. So they repented. That's not what I wanted. Jonah is trying to justify his running away. This is the first time in the book, all the way at the end, that we see the reason why he fled from the presence of the Lord in the first place. Many people rebel against the Lord out of ignorance. Jonah rebelled against the Lord, not out of ignorance, but because he knew what God was like. And he found his character offensive when he thought about how he might treat his enemies. Jonah knows God is merciful. He's not surprised by this. He quotes Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. This is in the history of Israel when God is giving Israel the Ten Commandments and Moses is up on the mountain. He asks God to reveal himself to him. And God says, I will pass before you and I will speak my name to you. And then he speaks this to Moses. Listen to what he says in Exodus 34. Verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now that, that sounds like what Jonah says, right? If we look at, if we look at verse 2 of Jonah 4, I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Jonah adds relenting from disaster, right? But listen to, listen to Exodus 34 again. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Jonah quotes from God's own word, back to him and says, I know you're like this. But he leaves out an important part. He leaves out the justice of God. Jonah is angry because he's focusing on the mercy of God and the patience of God. And he's seeing this and thinking that the justice of God then is going to be nowhere to be found. God's mercy is requiring Jonah to be patient. And this is a cost he doesn't want to pay. He's asking himself the question, why will God not punish Nineveh right now? Why does God not strike them down like he did Sodom and Gomorrah? Blast them from the face of the earth because they certainly deserve it. And here God is showing steadfast love and patience towards them. He is being slow to anger and Jonah does not want God to be slow to anger. Not only that, but as he thinks about the character of God, he's trying to reconcile it with what he said about the character of God earlier. Remember in chapter 2, verse 8, as he is rescued from going as far away from the presence of the Lord as he could, as he's shown mercy, what does he say in Jonah 2, 8? He says this, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope 
of steadfast love. Jonah is trying to think, how can, how can Nineveh be shown this God who is slow to anger and who shows steadfast love? How can they be shown that when they are idolaters? They are serving pagan gods. It just doesn't make sense to Jonah. And to Jonah, this requirement to be patient makes him wonder if God will indeed be just. Will this patience just go on forever and ever? And Jonah just have to sit by and watch this injustice that Nineveh perpetrates keep going? Jonah's not remembering, though, when he thinks this way, the context of Exodus 34. Remember what happened as Israel was gathered at the mountaintop to, re- to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord. Moses is up on the mountain, and what's the rest of Israel doing? They're down in the valley, and they're saying to Aaron, we don't know where Moses is. It's been a long time. You make for us a god, and we'll follow him. And then Aaron says, hmm, okay, and he gathers all the jewelry and melts it down and makes this golden calf. And then he says to the people of Israel, behold, your God who brought you out of Egypt. Right? So while Moses is communing with the true and living God up on the mountain, receiving the Ten Commandments, God's people are down committing idolatry, walking away from him, even as they see the mountain flame and hear the thunder of God's voice. Thank God that he was patient in that circumstance. Thank God that he showed steadfast love and faithfulness and patience to his people Israel. When Moses came down from the mountain and found that golden calf, he destroyed those first tablets. And he ground up the calf and made Israel drink it. And then God was ready to destroy the whole people of Israel and to start over with Moses. And what did Moses do? He pled with God for patience. He pled with God for the sake of his name among the nations to not destroy Israel, right? His argument was, you destroy Israel, the nations are going to think you don't care about your people. And now here we have another prophet, but he's not begging God for patience for the sake of the nations. He's begging God to destroy a nation. He's doing the opposite of what Moses did because he does not want to be part of this patience towards those who are enemies of God. Jonah thinks that God's patient mercy and his sure judgment are mutually exclusive, that they can't both coincide, that either God is merciful or he passes judgment. But Jonah is forgetting the whole history of Israel, that God repeatedly was patient and yet did not did not let the guilty go free. God repeatedly responded with patience towards Israel who repented over and over and over and then continued to walk away from Yahweh and then repented and then continued to walk away. God was patient with them. And yet, he eventually sent them into exile, didn't he? He eventually chose to judge them through foreign nations. God did indeed judge the wickedness of Israel and God does indeed judge the wickedness of nations. Jonah forgets what happened to Egypt and to Pharaoh in the midst of their rebellion against God. Jonah does not want to exercise patience as he waits for judgment and to give great thankfulness for the patient mercy of God. How should Jonah think about God's patience, though? I think the New Testament can help us here once again if we think about 2 Peter answers this very question. 
When the enemies of God gather around and say, God doesn't notice, he doesn't care. Peter writes this to the church. 2 Peter 3, verse 8 to 10. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, God is being patient for the sake of many coming to repentance. The same thing that's happening here in Nineveh, that God's patient mercy is bringing Nineveh to repentance, God continues to do that over and over and over with people. That doesn't mean the day of the Lord will not come. That doesn't mean there won't be a reckoning. But that means that God is willing to forbear his judgment for the sake of bringing many to repent and to trust in him, just as he does with Nineveh, just as he does with the nation of Assyria. God's patient mercy, though, requires that his people be patient. And Jonah certainly was not interested in that. He instead frothed with this impatience and he declared to the Lord, this is what I told you would happen. And he complained and he tried to justify himself. Not only that, but he turned in verse 3 to tell the Lord that he would have him show patience to Nineveh over his dead body. Verse 3 of Jonah chapter 4. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. It is better for me to die than to live. Why would Jonah want to die if God is going to be merciful to Nineveh? I think that Tim Keller is right when he points out that for Jonah, something had made life worth living that he was now being denied. Right? That's why you want to die. Life's no longer worth living. Why? Because something that you had that made life worth living has been taken from you. And that happened for Jonah. What was that? Why did Jonah want to die in response to God's mercy? I think we can see hints of it as we go through. If we think about in verse 9 of chapter 1, when Jonah talks about who he is, introduces himself to the pagan sailors, He starts out by saying this in verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Notice he starts with, I am a Hebrew. He's talking about his own people, who he is, identifying with his own people. And then in verse 2 of chapter 4, when he starts out, he says, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? See, Jonah is a good prophet, and a good prophet of Israel actually loves the people of Israel. And so Jonah, here, loves the people of Israel, and he's concerned about what God's mercy towards Nineveh would mean for the people of Israel. You see, this is what happened periodically in the Old Testament. When God showed mercy to pagan nations, it was most often to bring judgment on God's people for their rebellion. And Jonah lived in the time of wicked, wicked kings who refused to obey God, who worshipped pagan idols themselves. When Jonah says those who 
worship idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, he might have been talking about Israel. Because that's what the people of Israel were like during this time. And so Jonah knew that God was being patient and merciful towards Israel, but the judgment would eventually come, and it would probably come through pagan nations. Jonah is concerned that when God is merciful to Nineveh, this will cause Israel to suffer. And this concern was not unwarranted. If we think about the history of Israel, which you may or may not be familiar with, one of the ways God used the Assyrian people was to destroy the northern kingdoms of Israel and to bring the people of northern Israel into exile. Isaiah talks about this in chapter 8. He says that God is going to take the king of Assyria and he's going to cause him to overflow like the river Euphrates would overflow its banks in Egypt. And it would come and spread all over Judah and take them captive. And that's eventually what happened. Jonah is afraid that God showing mercy to Assyria will cause his people to suffer. And this reveals his heart problem. See, he was more concerned with what mercy to Nineveh would cost Israel than he was to what mercy to Nineveh would mean to the Ninevites, right? Like, Lord, destroy this pagan nation so that we will prosper, so that we will be safe, so that we will be secure, right? I don't really care that there are many men and women in Nineveh and also much cattle, as God says at the end of the book. I don't, I don't care about that as long as we're safe and we're secure. This is Jonah's attitude. This is the attitude of his heart. He is more concerned with the cost that will be paid. The mercy of God, though, requires that Jonah learns to love not his own country above God and make that his means of being why he, why he lives, right? Make that the most important thing for him. But God wants to teach Jonah to love the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to trust the Lord's judgment in showing mercy to whom he will. Right? God wants Jonah to learn to trust and love him more than he loves himself or his own people. But Jonah gives God this ultimatum. He says, it's them or me, essentially. Right? He says, Lord, let me die. Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah doesn't really want to die, but he's saying to God, if you're going to show mercy to the Ninevites and spare them, then don't spare me. I don't want any part of that. He thinks that God's mercy, again, is a zero-sum game, that God cannot be merciful to Nineveh and merciful to Israel at the same time. But guess what? God could be merciful to Israel if they repented and turned from their ways just as he was merciful to Nineveh. The problem wasn't God's mercy to Nineveh. The problem was Israel's hardness of heart that led Nineveh to be used as an, as an instrument of judgment. I think also Jonah may be angry at this point and having conflict in his heart because he himself has been used as a means, unwittingly in a sense, by God to bring this mercy to Nineveh, right? Through his own preaching, he has now brought mercy to a people that will eventually hurt his countrymen. And I think Jonah may have felt frustrated with God in that regard. But God's mercy requires that Jonah learn to seek the good of even his enemies. 
the Assyrians. Jonah would rather die, though. We know, though, that Jonah ought to respond by seeking to love even his enemies, right? We know that from the New Testament. Jesus talks about that in Matthew. When we think about Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is teaching that Jesus brought to God's people after Jonah, yes, but Jesus is just revealing the character and nature of God who never changes. This is how God was disposed and wanted his people to be disposed, even in the Old Testament. God here is being merciful to his enemies, and he wanted Jonah to learn to be merciful to his enemies as well, to love his enemies, even when it was costly, even above his love for himself, and even above his love for his fellow countrymen. Jonah responds to these costs with anger. And God responds to Jonah in verse 4 like this. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Is this right that these costs ought to upset you the way they have? Why does God respond to Jonah with a question. Seems kind of strange, right? God here is being incredibly merciful to Jonah and patient. Jonah doesn't even maybe recognize how much mercy God is shown. Jonah is an angry, self-justifying, demanding prophet here. And what does God do? He asks him a question that pierces to his heart and tries to get him to consider, do you do well To be angry. This question is going to come up again, and God's going to use it to even further drive the point home, which we're going to see next week. But I want to think, I want to use this question rather as a springboard to do what God was inviting Jonah to do, which is to consider how God's mercy might be offensive to us in similar ways to how it was offensive to Jonah, and then how we ought to instead respond. So, how are we like Jonah? In what ways does God's mercy offend us? I think one of the ways we become offended by God's mercy is when God is merciful to those we hate for one reason or another. I'm not not mainly talking about those we just hate because, hey, I just don't like you. I'm talking about those we look at and say, there is no way that they deserve mercy because they have done great wickedness. And why would God not destroy them? And when God doesn't, we become frustrated and irritated. We might not show it. We might not be as bold as Jonah as to give God an ultimatum. We might be afraid he might take us up on it. But we become offended when God is merciful to those we hate. I think we further become offended when God is merciful to those who've hurt us. Because nothing riles up our own sense of justice 
and our own sense of desire to see God act quickly than when we have been hurt by someone sinning against us. Right? We think that was wrong, and not only that we're right, and then we think, God, you need to do something about it. And if God is merciful, if that person repents and God does not judge them and give them what they ought, we feel a little bit slighted. We feel like we didn't get our pound of flesh. We didn't get our due. We feel like God has somehow forgotten us. I think we're further offended by God's mercy when God's mercy calls us to be merciful and forgive others. I think Jonah here did not like being in the midst of Nineveh when God was showing the Ninevites mercy. He had to look around everywhere and be reminded that God had not given them what they deserved and that that meant he had to treat them differently. We are offended when God calls us to treat those who've hurt us or those who've done great evil to others as brothers and sisters because they have repented, they have turned, and they have been shown mercy. This mercy is costly to us, and that offends us. So I want you to think about, think about someone recently who has harmed you. I'm sure all of us can think about someone, somewhere or another. Whether it's something relatively simple, like someone spoke crossly to you, and it hurt your feelings, and it was undeserved. Or whether it's some kind of deep hurt that is really, really eating away at you. How would you feel about God showing them mercy? How would you feel about God forgiving them and inviting them in to come and dine with you? This is what God does when he shows mercy. He invites, he invites enemies to share his table. This mercy becomes offensive. It is hard to think about God forgiving those who we don't want to forgive. And God showing patience to those who we would much rather see destroyed immediately. It is hard because we harbor unforgiveness when we've been deeply hurt. Right? We don't want to forget. It doesn't feel good to forgive when we've been deeply hurt. It feels better to see justice done than it does to extend forgiveness. I think this is one of the reasons why we are sometimes reluctant to show mercy and the love of Christ to our enemies. Because they might respond, and then we might have to call them brothers and sisters. And that's dangerous, because we would much rather see them destroyed. I think we have a difficulty not being offended by mercy because we cultivate impatience. We insist that justice is something that we are owed and owed now. I feel this way when I think about false churches. For example, even over in our city of Austin, they had a church service at the United Church of Christ. has nothing to do with church or Christ. That was hosted by drag queens. That is offensive to God. And I find that extremely offensive. And I would prefer God to throw a meteor down and destroy them. It's not right for me to prefer that. In one sense. Because justice is not mine. It belongs to the Lord. And he is the one that is offended. How would I feel about God showing mercy to them? How do I feel about the fact that God doesn't destroy them right now? That God allows things like that to continue to happen. 
It's hard to be patient the way our Father is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Ultimately, we struggle to not be offended by God's mercy because we are self-centered. We want ourselves to be in charge. And we think that what we know or would do is best. But think about it this way. God is teaching us to love our enemies by showing them mercy. You will never learn to love your enemies if God smites every single one of your enemies on the spot. Right? Then there's no enemies left to love. That'd be easy. But instead, he is merciful and patient. Even with our enemies. And one of the reasons he is, is so that we learn to love our enemies. And another reason he is, is so that we learn the transforming power of the gospel. When God takes, through the love of his people, and the message of forgiveness in Christ, takes wicked, vile sinners and transforms them into saints. Just think about the early Christians being drugged from their homes and put in jail and potentially murdered by Paul, right? And then God, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, appears to him on the road to Damascus and he's transformed miraculously. And then he writes in 1 Timothy that, that God saved him through Christ so that others might know the patience of Jesus. We wouldn't know that without God's patient mercy to someone who is an enemy of the church, who ought to have been destroyed. Friends, showing mercy, this kind of mercy is costly to us because what it requires is that it requires that we, as God's people, take on the pain of being hurt and having to forgive. And we take on the pain of bearing patiently even as others sin against us. And we take on the pain of dying to our self-interest and our own desires in order to love our enemies. But we can do this, and we must do this, because as costly as mercy is to us, it is infinitely, infinitely costlier to God. This mercy costs God. Think of this. Forgiveness Cost God his only son. Right? The way he can forgive Nineveh after they have done all of this evil is because one day his justice will be fully satisfied in Jesus Christ taking on the sins of the world. The reason he can forgive you and I after our great evil is because of the blood of the Lamb. It cost him this precious Precious son. Not only that, think about the cost of patience to God as he patiently endures evil. I just read through some of the Gospels this week again, and I'm always struck by Jesus' patience as he's mocked by these soldiers and beaten and told to prophesy. And he just did. He just said that Peter would deny him three times, right? But he's told by these guys, prophesy, prophesy. And then he's told, and he's told, come down off the cross, save yourself. You can't save yourself. He, couldn't sa- he can't save others. He can't even save himself. It's true. 
He patiently endured evil so that he could save them. He patiently endured evil, evil of his enemies so that he could save you and I. Think about the cost to God of loving his enemies while they were still enemies. We're called and we're struggled even to have love for those who were formerly enemies, right? Like when someone turns and forgives, it's still hard for us to, excuse me, turns and repents, it's still hard for us to forgive. Romans says that God loved us in Christ Jesus even while we were enemies. Knowing that we were enemies, knowing the wickedness that would flow from you and I, God chose to love you and I. It cost him dearly to show mercy. This is what our Father has done for us. And this is the calling of the people of God. To show the expansive, costly mercy of God by bearing these costs as well in ourselves. When we do, when we experience the pain that comes from having to die to our own self-desires of justice and justification and immediate retribution... And turn instead and love our enemies and pray for them. Or turn instead and forgive. When we bear that cost, what we're doing is we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. First Peter talks about that in, in chapter 4. That we ought to rejoice when we encounter trials like this. Because in doing so, we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And one day we will rejoice in his glory when he returns. This is what we're called to do friends so i ask you and i ask myself do you do well to be angry do we do well to be angry does salvation indeed belong to the lord or do do we want it to belong to us that's ultimately what god is asking jonah does salvation belong to me or to you and that's what he's asking us as well and because it belongs to him he is willing to pay those costs And he can be merciful to whomever he desires to be merciful to. So friends, I want to leave you with this thought. Remember, as you think about these things and as you you ask this question of your heart and as you recognize the ways that mercy offends you and it offends me in, in ways too. As we recognize this, remember this. Remember that God himself is merciful. And so that as you recognize the own, your own self-centeredness in your heart and as you recognize your own unforgiveness and as you recognize your own un- impatience, remember that all of our failed attempts to show mercy and our wrong responses to God's mercy are also covered by his mercy. That God has indeed, through the blood of the Lamb, forgiven you even of your failure to respond rightly to his mercy. Remember also that God is patient as we learn to show mercy. Jonah is not completely lost. He has made progress. God's mercy, the the, the prospect of God's mercy, previously made him run away, right? In chapter 1, he ran and tried to get as far away as he could. This time, he didn't run away. What did he do? He prayed and complained to God. That's improvement. That's not good, but it's still improvement. God is patient with you and I as we learn to be merciful to our enemies. And remember, friends, that Jesus himself died for those he loved, his enemies, you and me. 
He died so that we can die to our self-love and in turn learn to love God and others. And he accomplishes this in you and me by his spirit, which he gives freely and without measure. And so you can learn too, and I can learn too, to forgive those God has forgiven, to be patient and to wait upon the Lord for justice, and to learn to love our enemies, even when it costs us dearly. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard word from your word. These are not easy things to do. Everything in our flesh fights against being merciful to those we do not want to be merciful to. But we recognize, God, that your mercy is so much more expansive than ours. And so we pray that you would help us indeed by your spirit. We pray that you would help us to be patient, to love our enemies, and to extend forgiveness as you have forgiven us. We long to forgive others even as you have forgiven us in Christ Jesus. But Lord, we can't do it on our own. We need your help. And so we pray and ask you to help us. In Jesus' name, amen.